Hey, this is Ryan, the marketing intern for Book Podcast. We're currently in the bathroom at Noir at the Bar. Uh, Livius, would you like to share what's wrong with the bathroom we're currently in? So there is a, it is a, clearly a one-person bathroom um, based on the size. I know there's three of us in here right now, but uh, there's no lock on the door, which makes it a little weird. And additionally, if you had to sit to use the washroom, the person standing at the urinal would basically have to be touching your knees for so, both of them to be in action at the same time. So there's no like stall door in this? No, nope, uh, no, there is no stall door. Rob is rendered speechless, I think. I can't process. Yeah. So we just want to let you know the sacrifices we make to really give you uh, great literature and uh, books and whatnot. And uh, that's about it. So thank you for tuning into the weirdest segment ever on Book. I can't believe this is happening. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Rob, you sounded really uncomfortable in that clip. And I I imagine that's not the first time you were in a bathroom with two men. <laughs> now I'm trying to now I'm trying to remember if I have been in the bathroom with two men. I make it a point to not be in the bathroom with anybody because of my um my shy bladder. Um but I, I know what you're insinuating. Yep. So yeah, we basically dragged Rob into a bathroom just to make him have nightmares. Um, the bathroom, as you heard in that clip, was the weirdest thing. So women probably won't appreciate this unless you're a woman who spends time in the men's restroom at a bar. And, and let's face it, we may have some of those listeners. The bathroom is the size of a one-person bathroom. Um, and men's bathrooms have urinals. And they have a toilet. So if you have to, if, if you have a quick trip into the bathroom, you can just use the urinal. If you're going to take a longer time, you could take a load off and sit down and use the washroom. Um, this one was the size of a one-person bathroom. Now, one-person bathrooms in a Starbucks, for example, are the same way, but they have a lock on the door. This was about a quarter of the size of a Starbucks bathroom, and there was no lock on the door. It was really, it was really weird and difficult to use the restroom there, like from a psychological standpoint. And. I hadn't even planned on attending that bathroom because typically I try to avoid public toilets if necess- if, if absolutely possible, unless it's a, a known secure situation. Um, so they said, you have to see this, and I said no, and then they actually pretty much dragged me into the bathroom and shut the door and started doing stuff like recording audio and taking pictures and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not what I was expecting. Stuff. Let's clarify what happened in there. We took some pictures and there was some audio. That's it. That's I mean that's exactly what I just said. I don't know I I don't know how that clarifies anything. What a great way. <laughs> what a great way to kick off this Noir at the Bar Chicago edition of Booked Podcast. Um I don't think I don't know if in that clip we actually identified we were where we were. We were at the Independence Tap in on Irving Park in Chicago for I don't know. Is that the the fourth Noir at the Bar Chicago we've we've been to? Yeah, that was Noir at the Bar Chicago four. I actually have all of the Noir at the Bar Chicago posters sitting in front of me. So, um, it's very yeah. nice. I saw a picture. It looks yeah. it looks that picture is postable. You should post that picture of the book podcast listing. <laughs> can, everybody can see my work desk. Yep, it's a it's a work desk in progress. But um, I'm happy. I've got our. You know that uh, we have hosted now six live readings we've emceed is it only six why does it seem like it's so much more than six uh we've we i mean we've attended a lot more than that yes yes i mean and we've recorded and then podcasted probably three times that but and and i emcee them in my head if i'm there so i'm constantly judging the actual (laughs) emcee and emceeing it myself to see if i can do a better job and you know what i usually do (laughs) 
Well, we switched it up this time, as you will hear. Um, as I've discovered that I really am not good on my feet with thinking of funny stuff in the moment, so I tried to push a lot of that work on Livius this time around. Thanks. I was not very successful last <laughs> evening on doing that, but let's <laughs> let's let's take a step back. So this all started um, earlier in the in the evening before we got there. We got our co-pilot Kevin Helmick, who who jumped in uh, booked mobile studio number four, and uh, we drove. So this is what less than twenty four hours after the worst November snowstorm in Chicago in one hundred and twenty years. Yeah, which I didn't yeah. realize, but that's a staggering statistic. And I'm thinking that might be because Chicago didn't get it nearly as bad as we did out in the way north burbs. So we had uh, 16 inches of snow here. That's where we departed from. And we drove for well over an hour to get to somewhere that a bunch of people were like, oh, we can't make it, the weather. So um, that happened. Uh, So that's really where it started was with the fun ride. I'll tell you, other than the guy that was spun out and facing the wrong direction on the expressway, it was was a, a much better trip than I expected it to be. Yeah, just imagine back in the 1890s, the last time this happened, they did not have Kia Sorentos back then. I don't know it's what they... horse in the, in the road facing the wrong out, way. Their horse spun out. Well, I mean, that's possible. I kind of, I kind, I fell down earlier today in my parking lot of my apartment oh, building. God, that's so terrible. Are you okay? Yeah, actually, <laughs> so it was one of those where, you know, you, you slip and you think you're going to correct yourself, but then it just gets worse, right? You had the nine second fall, like I, that that video that, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nine second fall. Did you did you top that? I um no, it was like more like a two and a half second fall. But what I did was once I just gave in to the knowledge that I will be laying on the ground, I kind of fell forward and then went into this kind of roll, and it was like almost like an action star, like kind of a tuck and roll kind of thing, where I rolled across my back and I came up to my feet again and just popped right back up onto my feet. I felt like a superhero, and I was wearing like my long black coat. So I'm just gonna hazard a guess that in your head, this looked much, much cooler than it would have to any passerby. <laughs> oh, look at that poor chubby guy! He thinks oh. he looks like an action hero. But you know who fell down last night? Nobody. Nobody, because these are all outstanding performances that you're going to hear. Um, we kick it off as always with Jay Kingston. Um, uh, Founder, no. What do we call him? What is his position at Noir at the Bar Chicago? What did I, I said it? I said it last night. I said organizer and facilitator. Facilitator. No, no. Uh, he's definitely the organizer and creator. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Host. It, it's it's almost more like a franchise owner. Yeah, like he's got a KFC that he runs. Yes, and we are, we're the ones that sell weed through the fucking drive-through window. We are those guys. So, um, Jake kicks it off. Um, I guess we should back up a little bit. Um, Les Edgerton, unable to make it um, because he was coming from, God was Indianapolis, like two plus hours, like on a good day. Yeah, and for some reason, Indiana gets like, when we get five inches of snow, they get like 700 inches of snow. Yeah, I believe that's what the forecast actually said it was. Uh, was <laughs> could try to do the math in feet, but it was a lot of feet of snow. Yeah. Um, so Les was unable to make it, but uh, so Jake is going to kick it off with a little bit of introduction, and then we're going to hear from Frank Wheeler Jr., followed by um, Jake Hinkson, who then kicks off to John Bassoff, who, let's be fair, came all the way from Colorado to have his friends bail on his reading because there was a little bit of snow on the ground. Um, and then us in between all of that. So um, 
Anything else you want to say about this before we roll into it? I just want to say I think it's nice that Frank Wheeler Jr. got more than five. So the last the last time Frank was at North of Bar Chicago was the first one in December of 2014, and he got kind of squoze by another reader. So he had like five minutes. So he he started the the evening, and he got a little bit more time. So I was happy, and I was happy that he gave us uh, kind of an old school story. Something uh, those are the times that we've seen him read in Milwaukee and. Uh, Chicago were from his books, and this was something different, so it was cool. Very cool. Without further ado, here is Jay Kingston from Noir at the Bar, Chicago. Let's, um, let's get started. Everybody gets settled in. Good drink. You posted the one you love, or whatever, whatever works for you. Welcome to Noir at the Bar, Chicago. Here on this beautiful wintry evening, yes. not stop the people that really care. Thank you for coming. Um, we have a good lineup um, tonight for you. Uh, we have some pretty awesome leaders and me, so that's going to be good. Um, unfortunately, we do not have Les Edgerton, uh, who was going to come but was not able to make it um, because of weather and other related issues. So unfortunately Les uh, is not here, but he is here in spirit, so have some spirits, and Les will be there embedded inside that. Um, and uh, But what we have is great. And what we have is um, a couple of amazing readers. We have uh, Frank Wheeler Jr. Frank Frank Wheeler Jr. Uh, all the way from Milwaukee and all the way from Colorado, we have John Bassoff. And my hillbilly ass. So um, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm gonna hand things over to. I was looking around for you guys. Uh, I'm gonna hand things over to Livius and Rob. All right. So I'm Livius and this is Rob. We are the hosts of Book Podcast. Jake is kind enough every time to let us emcee this event, and we're very thankful for that, Jake. Um, thanks to all of you for coming out in kind of treacherous and nasty weather. Um, we do have one less author, which is a joke I made earlier and made much more sense in it tonight. But that means that each author is, um, is uh, what I'm looking for, going to read for a lot longer. So we should be done by about 10.30 or so. We got, I've got enough audio. We can record for about 16 hours. So <laughs> Take your time, guys. Take your guys. time. All right, so our first author of the evening is Frank Wheeler Jr., and here's his bio. Frank Wheeler, oh, by the way, the less author thing. So even if Les was here, there would be one less author because... <laughs> We're here all night. It's a versatile podcast. <laughs> Many facets to that joke. Here's Frank's bio. Frank Wheeler Jr. is the author of two published novels, The Wowser and The Good Life. He's a graduate of a master's program in English and also a police academy. He works as a security professional in Wisconsin, where he lives with his wife, Marie. Everybody, Frank Wheeler, Jr. Thank you. Okay, this was, uh, this was published in Crime Factory a few years ago. Get closer. Get closer, yeah. 
a few years ago, two years ago maybe, how I got back my darlings. <clears throat> As part of my covenant, I hadn't touched alcohol in seven years. Yet now there was a bottle of Jack Daniels on the table in my motel room, my service Glock beside. I filled the shot glass three times, drank it down twice, then put the cap back in the bottle and let the third sip. Didn't want to dishonor God by speaking as a drunken fool before him. I wiped clear my eyes and spoke my trouble. I don't know what to do. I can have my family back, all of them. Mir, Seely, even Anne. But I must let the devil into my life. I risk eternity in hell. I love you, Lord, but I fear I don't love you enough. All things being equal, the woman gets the kids in the house. That's what the lawyer told me when I said, and filed for divorce. <coughs> Doesn't matter, you never hit her. Or that she never cheated, and she did. It counts for nothing unless you can prove it. If you have proof, he said, then we can work with that. But it'd have to have occurred prior to the separation. No, I told him. She kept the kid until she filed. After a meeting with my lawyer, I understood. My wife would take everything I had, and out of spite, she would teach my darlings to hate me. The second part was just her nature. Next day, my cousin Clement called and asked to meet with me. He helped me before when Anne and I were tight on money. Her taste had been getting expensive, clothing, furniture, jewelry. Now that she lived in the city, she couldn't wash the stink of her family's ranch off her quick enough. Her part-time receptionist job at an accountant's office didn't pay much, nor did I make enough to cover it as a patrolman with Denver police. So Clement set me up moonlighting as a uniformed guard for Connor Gray, the, uh, the security company he works for. I checked parking receipts in the garage during the day and went back to being a cop at night. Saw my darlings less and less. Got our debt paid down. Likely that's when she started having the affair while I was working two jobs. And during the long hours with nothing to do, I studied for the sergeant's exam. Took it till I passed and when I got the promotion, I worked even longer hours. I expected Clement would offer me another job at this company, something more, something with more flexibility, maybe. I was already preparing to accept his offer. He heard plenty from me about. Uh, he heard for, uh, he heard plenty from me about problems with the department. After I got picked for detective, I kept bouncing around from bureau to bureau, robbery device back to robbery over to narco. He knows why too. Enough folks have their hands out or just take what they can before it's counted. It was getting impossible for me to ignore. It made me sick. She's a great whore, cuz, Clement said after he sat down across from me in the booth. You know, it's the guy who owns the office she works at. Must have shown her his bank accounts, all of them. He's got several the government don't know about, too. Just the money, you think? I said. She can be cruel, but I never figured it was just the money. She's a woman, ain't she? Then Clem asked how Miriam and Celeste were handling the situation. I told him I didn't rightly know. Mira started kindergarten in a couple of months, so I pray every day and night that this doesn't affect her schooling or getting along with the other kids. Celie's only two, so I don't know if she really knows what's happened. You know, he's staying overnight. I didn't. I thought about it. Randall, her boss, sleeping in my bed brushing his teeth and looking in the mirror over the sink of my bathroom. I thought about Anne saying her prayers before sleep. Did she still? With him next to her? Did she say them with him now? 
Didn't know you were still keeping tab, I said. It's important for you to stay informed, he said. I'm going to offer you a chance to fix this. You know you'll have to get rid of them. I can do that for you. I shook my head. I won't do that or have it done. Not that I don't want him dead, but it's against the law and I burn for it, either in jail or hell or both. I don't mean that I'll kill him. I mean his secret accounts. I can make them not a secret anymore. He'll have no choice but to flee the country. That'd work, I said. But it all costs money. I'll have to hire some people to do the research or even pay off some folks who'll need to take notice that might elsewise just look the other way. What I'll need from you is compensation to justify the cost. When he explained what I had to do, I told him there was no way possible. I'm a Christian. I believe in God and in Christ. I believe the Holy Spirit works through my life. I live in the light, not like the ones I arrest. They live in darkness. There's some things you'll have to chew over first, he said. Later that night in a hotel, before I took the third shot of Jack Daniels, I entertained a notion. Maybe there was a way I could do this without abandoning God's grace. I parked along Colfax, took out the small 22 pistol from the glove box. I purchased it late the previous night from an asthmatic 10-year-old black kid in an alley behind a gas station. Paid him in 20s, and he had to start counting over because his cough kept interrupting. Now, I double-checked the clip, chambered around, lowered down the hammer, left off the safety. I thought of Miriam watching me one night before work as I cleaned my service block at my desk. Her eyes got big and she asked what it was for, pointing to the gun. For the bad men, I said. Daddy protects people from the bad men. As I walked toward the address, I'd been given Clem's words stuck in my mind. You've got some pipe dreams you need to lose, cuz. They're going to kill you if you let them. It was a 15-story tenement. Clement said Jamie had left his uh, <clears throat> had left protect the protective custody of the state police when he discovered that he'd never be able to come back to the city again. He couldn't accept his old life was over. Went into the bathroom of the hotel room, opened the window, and crawled right out. Your pipe trips, kid, Clement said, or at least those two concerning our situation are as follows. First. You think she'll come back to you of her own will, or that God will change her heart. Gotta put that shit away, Johnny. You're not going to be enough for her when she has Mr. Moneybags. And I think you're already getting, uh, I think you're already leaning towards getting this one. Jamie wasn't expecting me. His teeth chattered and he looked pale and smiled wide when he locked eyes on mine. Shit, man. They must have got something on you. He laughed, invited me in. Jamie was my informant. His name was on record with the department. It'd be plausible that I'd gotten the address of his hideout from another contact we both knew. It'd hold up in court. The second pipe dream, John, is your belief in the justice system. Our justice system is universal. It holds up, does its job most of the time. But it's not absolute. Inside it smelled like stale beer, weed, tobacco, flypaper, T 
TV show that old Lassie episode. Jamie stood in his doorway lighting a cigarette. Shook his shaved head at me. He was in a t-shirt and his arms were sleeved tattooed with large crosses on the undersides. Never thought in a million fucking years it'd be you, Jamie said. Mr. Fucking Straight Laces. Shit. I'm getting rewarded for my good deeds. What good deeds? I asked. Give him free bags to folks, you know? Give him bitches an extra day to pay up? Stay in my hand, dog, when I could have killed some fuckers. Nobody else can see me, Jamie, I said. So if anybody else is here, I'll step out when you get rid of them. Then we can go down to the car. Got your backpack, right? You fucking bet, he said. Nobody else around, I'll grab my shit. He turned and went down the hall into the other room. Clement said Jamie had been told someone was coming to drive him to Mexico. I slipped a glove onto my left hand, took the 22 out of my jacket pocket, set the pistol down on the kitchen counter, removed the glove. I was supposed to shoot him as soon as he walked back in, then put the gun in his hand, make his fingers squeeze the trigger to shoot the wall behind me. I'd spend eternity in hell if I did that. What if one murder, Clement had asked, could prevent a dozen more? And doing murder is your only option. Justice says you don't murder folks. But if you ignore it, then those dozen other folks get murdered. You could have stopped it. You had the power to do it, but just let it happen. If you weigh it out by cost of life, which is worse, Johnny? If your job is to protect folks, which should you choose? Jamie walked back up the hall with a backpack slung over his shoulder. What's that? He asked, looking down at the gun on the counter. That's your chance. I said, I'm taking you in. Open my jacket enough so he could see the holster. You want out? You gotta get through me. If you drew on me and I killed him, it wouldn't be murder. God might not send me to hell for that. Sure, I'd be killing a man deliberately, but if I didn't, he'd surely kill me. God allows for self-defense. <clears throat> you believe in an absolute system of justice, but it isn't. It's almost always right, like nine out of ten times. Do you throw something away that works nine times out of ten? Clement asked me. No, you work with it. You do what you have to to get along. But maybe I'm talking to the wrong guy about this. That's why you keep transferring jobs, afraid of a little dirt. Been trying to get into homicide the last three years. They don't have the same problems with corruption others do. Not something that can be bartered as easily. You think that's where God wants you to be? Doesn't matter, I said. Jamie's going to get off when he testifies. No, cause he ain't going to testify. We've got things to protect. you got to protect your darlings. I'm paid to protect cops who get hurt by his testimony. Jamie swiped the gun off the counter and fired before my Glock cleared the holster. After that shot, for me, there was no sound. His first shot missed, hit the wall. Mine hit center mass near his heart. He staggered forward, fired again, breaking my left collarbone. He kept moving forward, one hand covering the hole in his chest, leaking blood out between his fingers, the other hand still pointing the gun. He tried to say something. I fired again. My second shot went right through his open mouth. Powder black on his chin, neck, nose, front teeth. 
Third shot went into his chest. The third shot went into his, into his chest again, bursting his heart completely. Jamie fell to his knees and put his face under the carpet. What you better remember, cuz, is that God made the whole thing. Every last bit's a part of his plan. Hell, you know, if he made everything, then he even made the devil. I kept awake while the doc in the ER looked me over, nodded and said I'd do just fine. Just before they rolled the gurney into the operating room, Ann showed up. They wouldn't let her touch me. Nurse kept her back while they rolled me away, stood and shivered, cried and shook her head but didn't say a word. When they gasped me for surgery, I didn't have a single dream. Of course I wanted her back. Any man who can call himself a man cannot help but be moved when a beautiful woman kneels in front of him and weeps. She wanted to come back, and I would keep with her. She was my wife, after all. My darlings deserved a mother and father who loved them enough to forgive each other. I would hate her for a while, but the Lord would help me overcome that at time. Clement offered me a part-time consulting job. With a little help from him, my departmental transfer came through, and he got to claim another homicide detective on his consulting staff. When Ann saw the size of my first check as a consultant, the look on her face told me everything. It would make the difference. After a few weeks home from the hospital, Clement called. He picked me up in my house, and we drove out of town a ways, up into the front range of the Rockies. Drove for almost two hours, and I saw signs from the city of Vail. Dad owns a little cabin near town, he said. Says this in case he ever feels like skiing. But he hasn't skied in a decade. Clement flipped the light switch. Twelve by twelve foot room had a concrete floor and blue egg crate foam walls. In the middle of the room was a man duct taped to a gray metal folding chair, green pillowcase over his head, moisture spot where his nose was. I could tell his mouth was taped from his muffled sounds. The chair was directly over a drain in the floor in the center of the room. Clement walked over and pulled the pillowcase off. It was Randall, Ann's boss. He wasn't blindfolded. When he saw me, he screamed through his nostrils. Clement reached into his jacket pocket and took out a small brown leather, <clears throat> leather pair of gloves and handed them to me. Then he took out an old 44 revolver. I was surprised Jamie shot you. You took a hell of a chance, kid. Kind of blew my hair back. I couldn't just do it in cold blood like that. Probably could have. Lacked the right motivation. You still want to be righteous in God's eyes. He could forgive a duel, but not ice-cold murder. That what this is, then? You want me to damn myself? Not hardly. I want to introduce you to our mutual friend. I already know him. thought you said you weren't going to do this. You said I wouldn't kill him. You said you wouldn't. I already know about him, but just let him run. He's going to have problems with plenty in the next few weeks. You don't understand yet. My cousin handed me a file in a black plastic folder. I opened it and read while Randall sucked in air through his nostrils, rattling and wheezing. Here's that part about proper motivation. See what he was going to do? How'd you get this? 
poking around, you know, looking through keyholes, mostly just talking to folks, providing proper motivation. The man taking the chair had a history with women and young girls. At least twice, he had found a mistress who had one or more daughters. The two other women mentioned in the file were single moms. Both were strippers and admitted to accepting a large sum of cash in exchange for not pressing charges for what he'd done to their children. I didn't ask how Clement had gotten in the talk. Probably, Randall only broke his pattern because Anne brought Miriam to work with her one day. After that, he'd start getting Anne gifts. She'd taken the bait. Why'd you do all this work? I asked. Honestly, you were the best thing on my list for getting a Jamie. Had to be you that did it if we were going to keep it all clean and have no blowback. If you disappeared in police custody, then they'd know it was one of their own that did it. And even when you ran away like that, it looked a little more, looked more than a little suspicious. But you, kid, you were the ticket. Your reputation is as clean as it comes. Also provided plausibility because he was your snitch. If you did it, it'd be an open and shut case. You found out from another informant. And when you tried to bring Jamie in, he freaked out, shot you, and you shot him dead in self-defense. You even got the transfer you wanted out of him. I'm supposed to murder him then, I said. You think God will mind so much with this slimy fuck? We have a justice system. So we do. And what do you think will happen now if we give him over to the justice system? What would happen with all the evidence I collected? It wasn't exactly an above-board investigation. It would be inadmissible, I said. Fruit of the poisonous tree. So likely he'd get off clean. Then what do you think he'd do with all the money in his? Find another woman with daughters. He would, but first he'd hire somebody to put you in the ground. And with that kind of money, even if he spotted you, <coughs> even if you spotted them, before they could get the drop on you, he could just keep sending them as long as you turn the other cheek. And he might see your little girls, your darlings, as possible witnesses. And, too, the fellow he sends could be coming for all four of you. So that'll become a murderer in the eyes of God. Hell, cuz, I'll do it if you want. He reached over for the gun. I pulled it away. No, I said, I'll do it myself. What's one more mark on me gonna matter, Johnny? The fourth? Shooting Jamie that way? That was a farce. I thought I could find a loophole so I could stay in God's grace, but I murdered him no matter how you look at it. That's another pipe dream right there, kid. God murders, as people murder. Read the book of Judges sometime. Get in the way of his plans and you'll likely wake up from somebody driving a tent stake through your temple. He ain't bound by the laws we are. He didn't sign no Magna Carta. Or his, if you go by what the book says. And he answers to no one. I considered praying just then, but realized I could think of nothing more obscene. I pulled the trigger on the man in the chair four times. <clears throat> There's much to meditate on now. I sit in my lawn chair in our backyard, drinking sweet tea, watching Mir teach Celie how to catch fireflies. Anne stands nearby with her arms crossed, laughing, watching them both. Colorado hardly ever sees fireflies, but we get a few here since there are so many lakes in the foothills, and it's always an occasion for the girls. 
I don't know. The Lord will forgive me for my killings. I'll keep on asking him. I do know that if I hadn't stepped in and taken Clement's deal, my darling's lives would have been destroyed by an evil man. Without me there to protect them, they would have fallen prey. Clement's consulting job may have more wet work for me someday. He said if they did, it'd be someone like Jamie or Randall. Every one of his kind that exists puts my girls in danger. I have no sympathy for those in darkness. And I know that's a sin too. Though I know I'll probably never see the Lord and will be cast into darkness myself someday, I will keep the devil in my life. It's the only way to stay with my darlings and keep them safe. I love the Lord, but I don't want him enough to sacrifice them. listening to Frank Reed, that what's missing from the holiday edition of Noir at the Bar is a big Christmas tree right behind the readers, and maybe that music from the Peanuts There's, cartoon. We've got a star. Yeah. And you have a beer fridge. That kind of counts, right? Well, there is a beer fridge. Is there any beer it's in there? It's got snowy it's on mountains on it, so it's <laughs> Who's up next? <laughs> next up, we have our benevolent host and... Uh, Organizer for this event, North of our Chicago, we have Jake Hingson. Here's a little bit about him. Born in Arkansas and raised in the Ozark Mountains, Jake Hingson is the author of several books, including the novels Hell on Church Street, The Posthumous Man, and The Big Ugly, and the short story collection The Deepening Shade, and the essay collection The Blind Alley, exploring film noir's forgotten corners. His work has been translated into French by Bellmeister's editions. His newest novel, Note Tomorrow, combines his love of old movies, smart-ass lesbians, and Jesus-obsessed hillbillies. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Jake Hankson. So I'm going to read from uh, the new book. Um, I'm going to read you a part of a chapter here. I think the setup you need to know is this. Uh, the book takes place in 1947. It's about a woman named Billy Dixon, who talks her way into a job as a distribution agent for uh, Poverty Road Studio. And so her job is kind of to go to the small redneck towns in the South and in the Midwest, uh, kind of peddling B-grade Westerns. And at the point of this novel, the point of the, the segment I'm going to read to you uh, kicks off. She's pulled into this town, and she's trying to make a deal with uh, the local theater owner. But he's like, I got this problem with this preacher in town. The preacher doesn't want people going to see movies anymore. So she's like, well, if I go talk to the preacher and talk him into accepting your, uh, to, to accepting you showing movies, will you buy some of my movies? And he says, yeah, sure. So anyway, she's going to go over and talk to the preacher. If I talk to the preacher into uh, letting them show movies. Where this is all going to go eventually, uh, once she gets involved with the preacher, uh, is chaos. Is some hardships going to go down? Which you should get a, a, a brief taste of um, in this segment. I'm going to read to you. So, 
So, like I said, she's just talked to the theater owner. He says you need to go talk to this creature. Try to talk to him into letting you uh, letting us show films here again. A little past the river, just as the main road headed out of town, I turned up a stringy path marked Church Hill Road. Snaking through the hills, I followed the road to a little bridge, straddling a sparkling river that. On the other side of the top of Green Hill, I sat a large wooden building with a flight of stone steps and a large sign outside that read, The Blood Bought Baptist Tabernacle. I parked next to the sign and pulled, up a little round, pulled out a little round pocket mirror from my glove compartment. I was checking my hair when the front door of the church opened. A man in black, a man in a black suit with no tie and hat, walked out. His eyes were closed. Even as I got out of the car, he didn't open his eyes or change his expression. Howdy, I said. Howdy, he said. Are you the preacher here? He walked down the steps, hands at his side, but he still didn't open his eyes. I'm Brother Obadiah Henshaw, he said. Glad to know you, Miss. Billy Dixon, I said, walking toward him, extending a hand. Brother Obadiah Henshaw had cropped black hair on top of a high, high white forehead. He kept his eyes squeezed shut, and it took me a moment to realize the son of a bitch was blind. I expect you just noticed something about me, he said. Yes, sir. Lost my sight during the war. Lost my sight and saw the light. Never read scripture before the Lord, before the war. But the Lord sent a fellow to read me scripture while I was laid up in the hospital ward. I memorized it all. Can you believe that? The entire Bible laying right there on my back, listening to that fellow read. Now, one of these days, when I'm called for final judgment, the Lord will restore my sight. The first thing I expect to see is the face of my Lord Jesus. The second thing I want to see is the words. I just want to see them wonderful words. I had a feeling that Brother Obadiah Henshaw had repeated that story a few times. He extended his hand in my general direction. When I met his hand, he gave me a shake that felt like he meant it. Holding, it. holding my hand, he smiled and said, What was your name again? Billy Dixon, sir. What's the Billy short for? Well, William, actually. Wait, you're a woman with a man's name? Yes, sir, that's my lot in life. Now, how'd that come to be? I was named after my father. He ran out on my mother before I was born. And to get back at him, she gave me his name and then dumped me on his mama's doorstep. Still holding on to my hand, Brother Obadiah Henshaw said, that's a peculiar thing for a woman to do. Well, she was a peculiar woman, sir. That's the story Grandma told me anyway. The, feature, the preacher finally let go, let go of my hand. Where are you from, Miss Dixon? He asked, not unpleasantly. Well, sir, that's why I came here to see you today. Um, I'm from Hollywood, California. And I've been led to believe that you don't care much for the motion picture business. Is that fair to say? Now the preacher seemed to pull back. His heavy brow tightened as he turned his attention toward the sound of the water down the hill. The Lord doesn't care much for the motion picture business, Miss Dixon. I just take my lead from him. Yes, sir, I respect that you feel that way. But I work for a fine company called Re Producers Releasing Corporation. It specializes in wholesome family fare, such as westerns. Now, I know that we all love stories of the American frontier, stories of brave pioneer men who founded this country. I'm sure you can see how these pictures like this will be culturally edifying experience for the whole community. Culturally edifying? Yes, sir. Is that the end of what you got to say? Well, because 
I don't happen to agree with you, Mr. Dixon. It seems to me that the California movie picture business is just a tool of Satan, a smoke and mirror show that he puts on his lure unsuspecting folks into all kinds of indecency. In this town, the movie theater is little more than a makeout place for wayward teenagers and local ne'er-do-wells. And those people on screen, women paid to walk around in nightgowns, drink liquor, and kiss men for money? Harlots. That's what Lava calls those kind of women. I was trying to think of just how to answer that. But he turned his shut eyes to me and said, So I reckon you can go back to the movie theater and tell Claude Jeter and tell him that he's going to have to do more than send some Hollywood floozy out here to sweet talk me. I dabbed my brow with a handkerchief. While I did, a side door to the church opened and a woman stepped outside. She was a looker. She wore a simple white blouse and a long brown skirt. Her unpinned hair hung down her shoulders in strawberry blonde curls, and her thin eyebrows arched over sleepy blue eyes. As she moved through the grass in her bare feet, she smiled politely and said, I didn't realize we had a visitor. This is uh, Miss Dixon from Hollywood, the preacher said. Claude Jeter sent her all the way out here to set me straight on my theology. I smiled. I don't know if I put it exactly that way myself, but I am pleased to meet you. The woman put her hand out, and as we shook, I noticed a small, plain gold wedding band. Amberly Henshaw, she said. There was something different in her bearing and voice, something different from her husband, something different from all that I had seen in the town of Stock Settlement so far. She moved as gracefully as if she had been to finishing school, and she pronounced her name with the Christmas of someone who had elocution lessons. Mrs. Henshaw, it's so nice to meet you, I said. I was just talking to your husband here about your conflict with nice old Mr. Jeter. Mrs. Henshaw smiled at that. Well, now, I'm afraid you'll have to do better than that, Miss Dixon. Claude Jeter is certainly old, but he's not exactly nice. He doesn't have much use for people. Mostly he just sits around that theater of his smoking his cigars. Brother Henshaw made a face like he tasted sour milk. I can't abide that dirty old man. His wife nodded. I do, go, I do miss going to the pictures, though. I haven't been in years. I used to go quite often before the war. Brother Henshaw murmured, I'm sure drunkards who give their lives to Christ sometimes miss the taste of whiskey, too. She answered him, Yes, I suppose they do. Her husband nodded. Well, she said, If you'll excuse me, I'm going to go down the hill and dip my feet in the water. A small breeze lifted her hair, and I caught the scent of her perfume. It was nice and surprisingly strong. I wondered if the preacher, who seemed like the kind of man to impose austerity on his wife, allowed her to wear it because he liked the smell as a compensation for all that he couldn't see. Mrs. Henshaw smiled at me and shook my hand again. Goodbye, Miss Dixon. As I watched her walk down the hill, the preacher asked, We done? Sir? Unless you want to ask Jesus Christ to become your personal Lord and Savior, I don't know what else we have to discuss. I turned to him. Well, there is one possibility we haven't discussed. What's that? Well, Mr. Jeter might be willing to make a faith offering to the church. The preacher's lips curled in something between contempt and amusement. You trying to bribe me, bro? Not at all, sir. I'm just pointing out that Claude, that Mr. Jeter, uh, would like to tie the portion of his earnings to the church every week. He can't do that, however, if he's not permitted to earn a living. The preacher laced his thick fingers together and bent them back and forth to crack his knuckles. If 
Funny thing, I've railed against drinking as much as I ever railed against picture show, but I never once had a shiner try to cut me in on the postseason. Sir, the preacher stepped toward me, his head lowered by the doors. I think you better scoot on down. It's better scoot on down the road before me and the Lord warn you about the wages of sin. I held up my hands. No need to get futuristic, Brother Henshaw. I can take over. That's it. Thank you for your time. I walked back to my car, fired it up, and backed out of there. I headed down the hill, cursing the job as never before. Arkansas preachers, movie theater roosters. I dreaded to see what Tennessee had in store for me. As I neared the bottom of the hill, I saw Amberly Henshaw with her feet in the water, her face lifted to the sun. As I approached the bridge, she opened her eyes and looked back up the hill. Her husband had gone back inside. She stepped out of the water and waved me down. I slammed on the brakes and the car stood ten feet down the gravel road as a curtain of dust swept over it. She ran up to the car, her face flushed with sun and dotted with sweat. Tomorrow, she said, he's going to visit. He's going visiting after lunch. What? I don't. I, I hadn't planned to stay the night in town. I said. She shrugged as if it didn't make the least bit of difference to her one way or another. Then don't, she said. But he's going visiting after lunch tomorrow, and I'm staying here. Without saying anything else, she turned and walked back toward the water. I looked up the hill of the church, then I put the car in drive and headed to the movie theater. As I drove, I kept hearing Amberly Henshaw's crisp voice saying, Tomorrow. What did she want from me? Why did she want me to come see her? Could she take one look at me and tell? No one in Texas, where I was from, ever spoke out loud about such things, of course. But I noticed that once I hit puberty and prettied up a bit, along with the inevitable male attention, came one miserable-looking housewife who lingered too long at my grandmother's store to talk to me. One night, she stopped me after work, calling me from the driver's seat of her husband's car. She stepped out, her mouth trembling as she tried to say my name. Then she started to cry and ran back to the car. She drove away and never saw her again. My first week in Los Angeles, I met a short-haired factory girl who took me to the Well Well Club on the bread. It was a world I'd never even dreamed of. Girls in skirt, girls in jeans and work shirts, dancing with dames and bills and skirts. It was a hell of a time for me. I dressed like Marlene Dietrich and vetted secretaries and servicemen's wives. It was fun, but nothing ever stuck. Dodging police raids was bad enough. I still have a scar where I sliced my hand open, crawling out the bathroom window on a Friday night. But dealing with names is even worse. People just had too much to lose. Families, careers. They all went back to their boyfriends or their husbands. They settled, and then they settled down. I'd seen more than one old flame pushing a stroller down the street. But this redneck preacher's well-spoken wife was a whole other prospect completely. I wasn't a damn fool. I knew what I was. I had no business. I knew I had no business going to see her. Tomorrow, she'd said, and looked me in the eye. Tomorrow. I couldn't remember the last time that word had held much promise. But now I couldn't get it out of my mind. Tomorrow. I didn't go back to the movie theater right away. I stopped down the street and I checked in to stop settlements only more large. Thank you. Ready to take it out with our final reader? Cool.
Final year of the evening, all the way from Colorado. John Bassoff, this is his uh, bio. John Bassoff lives with his family and his sickly greyhound that's so sad. In a ghost town somewhere in Colorado, two of his novels, Corrosion and The Disassembled Man, have been adapted for films but remain tortured in developmental hell. <laughs> the Incurables is his fourth novel. In addition to his writing, he is a connoisseur of tequila, hot sauces, psychobilly music, and flea bag motels. John Bassoff. Jason uh, told me to make sure I face the audience because I don't have a good side, is what he said. So, yeah. um, I'm really thankful to come out here. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to read with such with, with Jake and Frank, who are such talented writers. And I also noticed both of them did very religious themed books, as is mine in a lot of ways. So if you guys are planning to go to church tomorrow, no need anymore. Uh, I know, you know, gas prices being what they are, it's, it's hard, so. Um, this book, uh, it's called The Incurables. It, it's got three main characters in it. Um, one of the characters is a guy named uh, Walter Freeman, and he's, he's based on actually a real, a real dude who, um, whose claim to fame was to um, do a bunch of lobotomies in the United States. He, uh, he drove cross country in a lobotomobile, and uh, performed over 20,000 lobotomies. That's a true story. And so I used him as one of my characters. Um, another character is a, is a girl named Scent, who is a uh, psychopathic prostitute. And my third character is a guy named Durango, whose father is convinced that he's the Messiah. Um, so it's kind of a, a coming-of-age story. Uh, I'm going to read a passage. This is um, kind of introducing you to... Durango. Durango Stanton, barely 16 years old, sat cross-legged on a homemade throne wearing torn blue jeans, a filthy t-shirt, and a crown of thorns that kept slipping down his head and slicing his furrowed brow. All around him a crowd was gathered, most of the faces backwoods ugly, and they were laughing and jeering, spitting and cursing, while his father stood on a whiskey box, his pale face turned red, his black hair turned disheveled, and preached all the truths the sinners didn't want to hear. Durango and his father had come to the same spot at the carnival for three days straight to preach the new gospel, but had received nothing but scorn. Most of the venom had been directed at the old man, but occasionally some whore would come and spit in Durango's face, or some redneck would ridicule his crown. And it was at those times that Durango wished he had the powers his father had ascribed to him, wished he was filled with the Holy Spirit, although he was damn certain he wouldn't use those powers to heal the sick or raise the dead. And so there he sat in his throne, between the tilt-a-whirl and the funnel cake stand, staring down at his tattered shoes, listening as the old man shouted over the heckling and cries of hatred. Now listen, brothers, his old man said. Listen, sisters. I know firsthand about this wicked town. Believe me, I do. I've witnessed generation after generation of sad luck lives, Men spending their days working at the refinery, spending their nights drinking Tennessee whiskey. Women staying at home with their emaciated kids or plying their trade for Ma Brown over the Pioneer. A town full of incurables, they say, and it's hard to argue otherwise. And so maybe it's too late, maybe it's hopeless. But I'll tell you something, you best listen. I ain't giving up on you. You can burn me in the fire, blind me with lie, flame me with a butterfly knife, I'll be waiting patiently still. 
But before you can be saved, I do believe it's time you understand why Jesus of Nazareth came into this world and what happened to him, what the Romans did to him. I do believe it's time you understood the words of love and salvation he preached. And most important, I do believe it's time you understood the Messiah has returned and that he sits before you on this ragged throne. And at this, Durango's face blanched because he didn't really believe it himself. Never had. He adjusted his crown, the blood from his forehead now stinging his eyes. He didn't know why his father thought him the Messiah, but it had been that way for some time now, ever since his mother had died. And the strange thing was, before her passing, the old man had never been the religious sort, not really. He'd never gone to church, never poured over the words of the Bible, never stabbed his knees in prayer. But after she died, after they found her buried in that ancient well deep in the woods, her flesh waxy and rigid as old putty, the old man changed. He quit his job at the filling station, began mumbling nonsense, yanking at his hair, and eventually he became a true believer in something. For his part, Durango began worrying that his father was a lunatic, because faith and delusion aren't that far apart when you really think about it. And then one day, when the sky was filled with a thousand crows, the next great plague, the old man took Durango for a ride in his Lincoln Continental and told him about the dream he had, as real as salvation itself. Told him how in his dream, he'd seen a steel staircase rising from the Oklahoma dirt, its top reaching towards the clouds. And on top of the staircase, God, surrounded by fire and ice. His father told him that God had spoken, had revealed that the Messiah had returned, and the Messiah was Durango. And when the old man told Durango about his destiny, eyes glowing like some cave demon, Durango felt scared and lonely and wished his mother hadn't died, wished his father weren't crazy. But soon he accepted his role as the Messiah, at least the best he could, because he felt sorry for the old man and couldn't help but love him. And now as old man Stanton continued making promises Durango never could keep, as he prophesied about the coming days, an old man with a thick handlebar mustache, the stink of poverty leaking from his pores, approached the preacher and, without warning, shoved him hard. Stanton tumbled off his whiskey box and fell to the ground, mud spattering his suit. The crowd laughed and patted each other on the back. As Stanton struggled to his feet, the man turned to the crowd, spat on the ground, and spoke in a booming voice. We've had our share of freaks in this town, ain't we? Well, just in the last week, I seen that crazy old bird, Millie Florence, all 400 pounds of her, running out of her shack, buck naked, shouting about some invisible knife-wielding maniac nipping at her heels. More laughs. And I seen good old Frank McCarthy sitting on his porch, shotgun in his lap, violin in his hands, playing that wretched melody again and again and again, hoping to win the heart of a certain whore, making a bloody mess of himself when she mocked his effort. And I seen that albino boy biting the head off a pigeon, smearing his face with blood. Yeah, we've had our share of freaks in this hick town. But I ain't ever seen a couple of freaks like this, have you? They take the cake, you ask me. Then he turned and pointed at Stanton. You, you claim your son's the Messiah? Well then, I do believe he should prove it. I do believe he should turn some of our shit water into whiskey. Durango instinctively rose to his feet wanting to defend his father, but Stanton commanded him to sit, and he did. While the crowd pushed forward, becoming louder and more unruly, 
Stanton wiped off his tattered seersucker suit and pulled back his unruly hair. Then he effaced his accuser, nodded his head slowly. Understand that I am only a humble messenger, and the words I speak are not mine. But the message is this. Repent, repent, repent. Get your home in order. Leave behind your sinful ways. And most important, learn what love really is. Because until you know what love is, you will not be able to recognize my son, and your soul will continue to rupture. And now there was more laughter, more scorn, and the old drunkard faked like he was going to punch Stanton in the face. And Stanton flinched and shielded his face with his arm, and a tall, skinny woman wearing fake pearls, a lifetime supply of mascara, and a broken shoe called out, You ain't nothing but a phony, you and the boy both. Stanton wiped the sweat from his brow and nodded his head. I see that we are inflicted with a great disease of, of unfaithfulness. But if proof is what you require, then proof is what you shall receive. He turned toward his son and told him to rise. And though he felt ashamed, Durango did what he was told and rose to his feet, removing the crown of thorns from his head. Stanton gazed into the crowd, growing by the minute. Then he raised his right hand, a tattered Bible flickering between his fingers. Those who are blind and want sight, step forward, he shouted. Those who are lame and want to walk, step forward. Those who are deaf and want to hear, step forward. And for a long time there was no movement, but then an old woman appeared, hunched at the shoulders, dressed, tattered, torn, white cane in her hand, face badly burned, eyes rolled up into her head. The butchers and the drunks and the whores guided her past Stanton and over to where Durango stood in front of his throne. Durango gazed at her for a few moments and suddenly he felt terrified. His legs became rubbery and he fell back to his seat. The old woman took a step forward and grinned a terrible grin. My old man threw acid on my face when he caught me in bed with another man, she said. That was 32 years ago. I ain't been able to see since. If you are who you says you are, you should be able to give me sight. And with sight, I do aim to find that old bastard and put a dozen holes in his belly. And now the crowd was getting more agitated, pointing and laughing, cursing and shouting. Durango looked at his father, and his father nodded his head, and then closed his eyes, and began mumbling to a prayer to the nobody in the sky. Durango took a couple of steps forward, until he was directly in front of the grotesque-looking woman. While she continued to grin, and while the crowd continued to mock, Durango Stanton carefully placed his hands on the woman's deformed eyes. He held his hands there for a very long time, pressed his fingers against the woman's tightly clenched eyelids, and then closed his own eyes, and for the first time in his life, he felt God's presence, felt the power blasting through his veins, swelling in his skin. The woman began moaning, and then the crowd became hushed. And then Durango's own eyes rolled back into his head, and his tongue swelled in his mouth, and he began speaking, but he had no control of the words. For judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And then he removed his hands from the woman's face, and she opened her eyes, and for a moment her eyes met Durango's and her face betrayed an expression of terror. But Durango was the only one who recognized the moment because a split second later, the terrible grin returned 
And she turned toward the sound of the crowd and with great triumph shouted, He's a fraud, a phony. Blind I have been and blind I will stay. The crowd erupted into more scornful laughter and taunts. And the devilish woman turned her back toward Durango and tapped away with her white cane until she was swallowed up into the gathering. Durango looked at his father and saw a silent, blank look that said his face was shaken, if not destroyed. Durango shook his head, said, She's a liar. She saw. I gave her sight. Stanton nodded his head in a daze. We should pack up, he said. We should get on away from here. Thank you. fly back to Colorado tomorrow. I can't bring all those books. I'm going to sell them real cheap. Real cheap. So, so buy them. All right. Well, thank you all, all coming out. Uh, can we have one more round of applause for the readers? We have books for sale, so please uh, come, come check out the wares. Uh, if any of y'all need to make a decision for Christ, please see me or Frank or John. We'll be happy to talk you through it. Otherwise, uh, thanks so much for coming out. I'll see you next time. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you, man. Okay, and you just heard Frank Wheeler Jr., Jake Hinkson, and John Bassoff doing a very religiously themed... Now, I have a theory about this, and it wasn't mentioned during the reading, but... You know that there was a bookstore across the street, right? Yeah, it was books and Bibles and books, booze or something. Books, <laughs> at least two of those things. Okay. So I was thinking they were inspired by the local bookstore to to make it a little bit more religiously themed. Books, Bibles, and bullshit. Books, Bibles, booze, bullshit. Yeah. I don't know. Somebody earlier in the day in the event category, or maybe it was a post that was shared about it said, how come they never have this at a park or at a church? That was like foreshadowing. Yeah, so maybe maybe noir noir at the synagogue. Maybe we should see if we can pull that off. <laughs> I'll bet you Jed Ayers is on board with that. Noir at Temple. Well, no, he's doing um, noir at the bar mitzvah. Did you see exactly. that thing? Exactly, yes. That's what I'm saying. I think yeah. he'd be okay with, you know. Yeah. They're all round, so no one can sit in the corner. <laughs> is that is that what a synagogue are they round are they round inside man now i have to now i have to look i th- I, I can't have just made that up in my head right <laughs> well yeah i don't know i mean yes Holy you absolutely crap, can I have synagogue wrong right unlike the first attempt nice of course the um, second one is is synagogue of satan i don't think that's where we want to go that's i well uh isn't there something with gender inequality in in if you go to a synagogue like women can't wear hats or something like that why would women wear hats in a church anyway? I don't know. The dudes do, don't they? Well, I don't think those are actually hats. This is going way, way, way wrong here. No, synagogues are not round, apparently. <laughs> is it a mosque? Or is it like the Baha'i Temple? Oh, man, I don't even know what those things mean. Let's see, round churches. Let's see what that is. <laughs> there's there's going to be a lot oh, of editing in this. God save us. <laughs> so you're going to have to cut out a whole lot of this. Did you? I said God save That was... All right. Oh, God, yeah. All right. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Apparently, I must have well. dreamed that there's some type of religious <laughs> worship place that is round. What about, look for the Baha'i Temple, because there's one in... 
I mean, I found pictures of some that are round, but I don't think that, like, I thought there was a type of place <laughs> of worship that was always round. Well, it looks round. Yeah, all right. I don't know what that is. So, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. Yeah, so <laughs> back to our readers. Yes, a religious <laughs> theme. Um, I got to tell you, Bassoff, man, that guy's an entertaining reader. He brought it in a big way. Well, here's the thing. When you're writing something, can you imagine if he did that in a very, like, monotone voice where he's, like, basically like a carnival barker preacher guy? That would be, like, the most ridiculous. He had to bring it, you know? You know, that's monotone. That's exactly how I would have brought it because that's how I read everything. Yeah. I'm sure that's the the voice in your head also sounds that way. Oh, oh, yeah. And, And more monotone. Tone maybe sometimes drony, even drony. Yeah, just um, uh, in case you missed it, I C Y M I. Right, that's what I see in online all the time. Um, I'm just gonna let you know again what people were reading from, in case you want to pick it up and check it out. Frank Wheeler read a story called "How I Got My Daughter," "How I Got Back My Daughters," and I looked it up. It's from Crime Factory issue number seven, which is back in 2011. Jake Hinkson. Read from his book, No Tomorrow, which came out earlier this year. And John Bassoff read from The Incurables, which we reviewed last episode. We did. Very enjoyable book there. And, um, all right, I'll, I'll spoil this a little bit. Look forward to December um, containing a John Bassoff interview, as we kind of solidified that last night as one of our December interview series. That's right. Looking forward to that. It's uh, I already I already asked one of the questions that we're gonna ask in the interview, and I have an answer. But Livius wants to wait and uh, save it for the podcast so it can be more organic. That is correct. Um, and before we before we go, we do have one more um, piece of audio from North Not of us. Chicago. From, <laughs> well, kind of. There's a little bit of us in there too. That's true. All right. So here's uh, our marketing intern. Who introduced himself that way to everybody, which was just excellent, um, Ryan, um, with a little bit about the Book Podcast newsletter. Hey, this is Ryan, the marketing intern for the BookPodcast.com. Just a reminder to sign up for the Booked Podcast newsletter on BookedPodcast.com so you can get the free copy of the Booked Anthology. It's filled with crime, horror, a lot of uh, tasty things. And I am recording this live at Noir at the Bar at Independence Tap. And uh, Livius, uh, Rob, would you like to say hello? Hi. I mean, we're so, saying hi on our own podcast. It's a little weird. I think it's a little meta. Place, so, yeah. But I just want to encourage you guys to sign up for that. So you heard a lot of great uh, stories tonight. And you could get one in your inbox. And uh, that's about it. And I'm going to start drinking. So back to the show. Bookspodcast.com. Help Ryan keep his job. Keep Ryan's job. Help. All right. That was weird. And I want to say, like Livia said <laughs> before we listened to the clip, um, he kept introducing himself as the marketing intern to the point where if we had people approach us and say, so how does it work? You have an intern now? <laughs> yeah, but cool. I realized last night that I'd hear him say that, and it just made our podcast sound that much more legitimate. Um, it is legitimate. More legitimate. Oh, then yes, yeah. absolutely, I agree. And more legitimate, yep. Let's get some um, more interns. <laughs> lots of interns. Um uh, great job, uh, Ryan, and thank you for uh, for coming out. And a uh, good job with the newsletter. I hear that we are very, very close to sending out our first newsletter as soon as it is pieced together. So um, if you are 
on the book podcast mailing list. Excellent. You'll be getting an email in about a week or so. And if you're not, then you should probably sign up. And how, I don't remember. How is it they, they do that, Rob? Well, they're going to want to go to bookedpodcast.com. On the right-hand sidebar, you're going to see a thing that says sign up for our newsletter. When you drop your email address in there and click a button, boom, you're getting a free ebook edition of the Booked Anthology. Nice PDF only. Moby, EPUB, PDF, some magical new format. If you want, we can make one up. We can. So um, go do that. Um, if you are a Patreon contributor, um, go check out the Patreon page. There's some new stuff there. We'll Hell talk yeah, about there it is. More next episode. So, but uh, until then, do the work yourselves. Don't expect us to tell you everything. We tell you what to read, right, or in listen event. to in the yeah. in the event of a live, yes, live reading. So, we tell you yeah. where to pee too. Apparently, according to the audio <laughs> clip at the beginning of the episode, <laughs> there. Uh, I always <laughs> thought this podcast should be done from a bathroom, just once, not regularly. <laughs> but no, and, and there we go, uh. toilet humor and all. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode, right? Am I right? We're done? Well, yeah, but yeah, but let's tell people what's up next, assuming I can actually get through it in the next week. Have you, okay, have you made any progress on, on our next book? I'm at the same progress I was when we spoke the other day. <sighs> Me too. All right, so <laughs> coming up next episode, you will hear Livius and I talk about ep- volume two of The Familiar by Mark C. Danielewski. We are both at the exact same point in the book right now, which is about an eighth of the way through. <laughs> um... Looking forward to it. It reads pretty quickly. Yeah, so far so good. I just have to get motivated to crack it open. Part of it is that it's a really heavy and it's a paper book. <sighs> I know that arthritis kicking in in your old age can, and stuff like that. Just I, tell you, I already can't remember shit, and now my joints hurt from reading books. This is mm. getting old as for the birds. You gotta you gotta start smoking weed. That's what the old people do for all of their weird like old people ailments. You know what? The only people that do that are the hippies who were smoking it when they were young, and now they're just old. Oh. Is that how that works? I think so, right? I don't know. I don't know. Hippies are all weed smokers, no? Well, the hippies are weed smokers, but I thought I didn't know if it was exclusive to weed smoke or to hippies. I don't know. They, I don't know they, anything about these drugs. They do it all in this round room. I just can't remember what it's called. <laughs> oh shit! Thanks all right. for tuning. <laughs> yeah, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.